Boom. We are live. Welcome to the Reeling Freedom Podcast. We are at episode six. I'm having so much fun talking to different veterans and people in the fishing industry. I have um, more podcasts that I'm editing right now. But as promised, episode six is Captain Ken Skaggs, retired naval aviator, flying the F-14 Tomcat. 27 years donated to your United States Navy. So I hope you enjoy it. Please, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, please rate and review. The more people we have um, supporting our foundation, the Reeling Freedom Foundation, the better it is for our veterans. So I hope you enjoy this one. Um, one of my favorite statements he made during this podcast that got cut out of the podcast because of various reasons. He said the Navy took him to 46 different countries and hundreds of stories. And I hope you enjoy these stories. Cheers. We are live. Well, I tell you what, if it was ever a young man's dream, a young man um, in 1986, like myself, I graduated high school in 1992, but Every kid my age wanted to fly the F-14 Tomcat. Thank you, Tom Cruise. And today, I have Commander? Captain. Captain Ken Skaggs, U.S. Navy, U.S. Naval Aviator. Yes. Flying the F-14 Tomcat. Well, flew. Flew. Yeah, <laughs> flew, flew. Okay, so um, just t tell us, where are you from? East Texas, just a little town south of Tyler, yeah. east of Dallas. Yeah. And uh, what was it like growing up in, in um, Texas? When did you graduate high school? I graduated in 1982. Um, Texas, that part was still very rural at the time. Yeah. Well, it actually still is very rural, but it was even more noticeably rural back then. I lived uh, seven miles out of town. There were seven houses, I think, between us and town. And of course, you knew everybody. Oh, on yeah. the way in. So pretty small town, right? Oh, I started kindergarten with 53 people. 48 of us graduated 12 years later. So 50, 53 people? Yes. In your... One class. In one class. Yeah. Well, I had 61 in my entire high school. <laughs> your school was smaller. <laughs> it was quite a bit smaller, yeah. So 1982, you said? Mm-hmm. Graduated high school. And, and when did you know, at what age did you know you wanted to, to join the Navy? Ooh, that was kind of in flux right up until I went to college. Um, I was looking to apply to a couple of the service academies, and then I decided that wasn't me. I applied for a Naval ROTC scholarship, and... Uh, was so naive about how the Department of the Navy worked. I, I applied for both a Navy and a Marine scholarship. 
and I get this call from Dallas. He goes, okay. Isn't which, that the same thing? That's what he said. you got to pick one. I'm like, well, I, I want to apply for both. He goes, it doesn't work that way. You're getting a Department of the Navy scholarship. Do you want to go Navy? Do you want to go Marine Corps? Don't have to stick with that. You just have to tell us what your preference is right now. Right. So I'm out working in the hay field. I come home one day, and my dad was a retired commander from the Naval Reserves. And he said, hey, listen, some guy, some captain called from Dallas today, said you got a scholarship to A&M. Or you have a scholarship, and uh, I told him you'd accept it. If you don't want it, you can call him back. Pretty much one of those, we're going to default to your taking it. Right, yeah. yeah. So that was your dad saying, you better take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was pretty happy, I think, that he had that load off. Yeah. Um, so you grew up on out in the country on a farm? And I grew up on a 1,200-acre ranch. It was a beef cattle operation. Okay. Wow, that's big. It was a fairly large one. There's a whole long story that has very little to do with uh, reeling freedom or any of that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's a, well, yeah. It was own, owned by an oil man out of Midland, Texas, and my dad managed it for him. Yeah. And that was a basically well, lifelong job for him. Yeah, you're here because you're my friend, and, and you have fished with reeling freedom, and you're a retired naval aviator. How many years? 27 and a half almost. 27 years in the Navy, wow. So, 1982, you go to college, A&M. Mm -hmm. Texas A&M. Yeah, they tell me if you know what A&M stands for, you get a free ride there. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I know it's not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. But what was it like? So, th this is a, a bona fide ROTC program for the Navy. I believe it's the largest ROTC unit that the Navy has among any of their colleges. Wow. Might be one or two that compete with it, but um, it is definitely one of the largest. Yeah. Wow. What was it like going to ROTC there? Well, A&M has some interesting tradition. There's actually more officers fought in World War II than all service academies combined. So it is a huge in-process. So, yeah, the, the school has always produced a lot of commissioned officers, both regular and reserve, and it has a huge tradition of service there. Yeah. And so it was also a very interesting kind of a, I don't want to say a boarding school, but it was a transition school from a bunch of kids coming off the farm and then transitioning out into the bigger industrialized world, if you would, of business yeah. or military or some academia. And that is College Station? It is. Yeah, College Station, yeah. That's where they had that, they do that gigantic bonfire. Is that? Yes. They got shut down a few years ago. Did you ever attend one of those? Oh, yeah. That was something that you did. Um, we would go out to some field somebody had and cut down a bunch of trees. And then they would stack this bonfire uh, probably four or five trees tall up to about 100 feet. Yeah. And unfortunately... They had never quite nailed down the engineering of it, so one year the soil was really, really soft, and the bonfire collapsed while they were building it. And unfortunately, a number of students died that year. Oh, okay, so it didn't it didn't fall on them while it was burning. No, it fell during construction. Okay, and they pretty much shut it down after that, right? They took it off campus for sure. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, but there's still some kind of tradition. So, what is that? What is that for? Is it okay? Now you're off into 
yeah. college rivalries in the state yeah, of Texas. I want to hear, so hear it. I think it was the beat the hell out of Texas University, which is what old Aggies refer to the University of Texas. Yeah, gotcha. No, you're not the only university of Texas, so we call them T, little T, little U, Texas University. Gotcha. So I think the bonfire developed as something out of that. Um, they do midnight yell practices. If you've ever seen an A&M football game, they have a very coordinated student body that does these yells, and they'll practice the night before called midnight yell practice, just a way to get out of the dorm and go do something. I have not seen that, no. Okay. Well, if you ever watch an A&M game, now you'll be a little more aware of that one. Gotcha. Yeah, no, so I go through, I do the ROTC stuff. I switch out of an engineering degree because I was just, it wasn't for me. Went okay, back. Okay, hold on. Time out. Okay. So you're, you're in Navy ROTC. At what point did you know you were going to um, um, fly? Well, that, I had always entered the Navy intending to fly. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. I, my interest in aviation apparently goes back to before I even remember it because I've had friends of my father tell me, he goes, oh yeah, we were out in the fields, you'd just turn, stop, and look a certain direction, we're wondering what you're doing, and then here'd come one of those pipeline spotter airplanes. Gotcha. So I'd heard the airplane before they did, and I was just looking to see the airplane. Yeah, I gotcha. So were you one of those guys that could tell what type of aircraft it was from No, I didn't. miles? <laughs> no, I didn't have any exposure to that. and. You know, there were so many different civilian models of airplanes out there. I had, I didn't fly actually until I, I think I flew once on a commercial airplane up to Oklahoma City from Tyler, and that was it one time. And then I flew again. I was reading a newspaper when I was about 17, yeah. and the local airport had a get an introduced to flying thing for 20 bucks. So I got my brother and uh, my best friend from high school, and we headed off to the airport to the ride the plane and we're we're bickering of course who's going to ride up front i'm like no i found this deal i'm riding up front i'm the guy that wants to fly yeah so do you know that you're going to fly the tomcat no no not at all okay hold on let me do a little math okay 1982 you Uh, enter enter a&m enter a&m you graduate 86 yep Right when Top Gun comes out. <laughs> uh, right when an officer and a gentleman came out, I think. Or was that Top I don't I think... Officer and a gentleman came out in about 84. Yeah, I think um, Top Gun came I out think. in 1986. Okay. So, yeah, here I am. I had really... I wanted to go fly the F-14. Yeah. And out comes Top Gun. Yeah. And now everybody and their brother <laughs> wants to go fly the F-14. Well, those of us that got into flight school, and which is funny, my military advisor for years thought, because he was a submariner, he thought I was going to go to submarine school for him. Yeah. And I'm looking at him, and I'm going, Lieutenant, you've seen my math grades. He goes, yeah, but we can still get you into nuclear power school. I go, you can, but two weeks later, I'm going to be right back here going, now what? Yeah. So, yeah. so I had a Navy recruiter come to my house. And um, I scored well enough on the ASVAB that they were pushing nuclear propulsion, nuclear, nuclear, and whatever that is um, in the Navy. But I guess a, a pretty hard job, right? They have very smart people in that community, yeah. enlisted and officers. So, yeah, it's a very selective community. And from what I heard, I never went through it, but I heard that nuclear power school was a very mathematically intense school. 
and that was just not my strong suit once you got past basic arithmetic, which I can do. You've seen me. I can do fairly well in my head fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty good. But not once you got up into calculus and derivative calculus and all that, like, nah, and they're heavy into that. So besides, by that time, I'd already decided I wanted to fly back on that. Occasionally, I'd flicker off of it and look at something else and go, well, that looks kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, like a bass after a shiny lure, and then I'd come back to, <laughs> come back to um, flying. So yeah, I headed off to flight school. Yeah. And went through primary training at Pensacola uh, in Florida, like everybody that goes that route does, starting off initially. And then um, I got selected for jets out of that. Now, funny story, as we're flying the T-34 around one of the outlying fields there one day, mm-hmm. we're doing touch and goes, and we take back off. In Pensacola. You're already mm-hmm. flying at this Already time? flying at this time. Are you flying in high, in high school? No I, no, I had no previous okay. flight. Yeah other than those two that I told you about. So we're doing touch and goes, and we're headed back towards Whiting Field, and there's an instructor in the back seat, so he's talking to me, and he's like, Ensign Skaggs, yes, sir? Where are you from? Uh, East Texas, sir. Oh, did you grow up on a farm? Well, I grew up on a ranch. <laughs> well, what'd you raise? Oh, we raised cattle, sir. He goes, well, they ever raised the landing gear? Because <laughs> by this point, I'd forgotten left the landing gear uh. down, so... I think he went back to the squadron and told that joke to everybody. Raise the landing gear. Yes, raise the so landing gear. So was this, how many how many flights um, have you done so far? Eight to ten. Oh, okay. And, and, and fairly significant training jets, right? Can you explain a T-34 a little bit? A T-34 is a two-seat with the seating fore and aft, a low-wing bubble canopy, uh, single-engine propeller airplane, Oh. Driven by a turbine. Okay. So it's turbine-powered propeller. So no jets at this point. Yeah. No. No, okay. that's the next stage after this, after you select. So you, everybody goes through this training with the T-34s, and then they divide you up into jets, multi-engine, or helicopter pipelines. So you still don't know at this point if you're going to fly the F-14? I don't know if I'm going to fly fixed wing at this point. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, keep going. So What's next? go through all the training there and um, I had a primary flight instructor uh, whose name I still remember he was an absolute stickler for being right on and I remember one day we were doing you you go to a run-up area before you take off to test out the engines and the rules said you needed to be pointed at this certain station on this certain heading okay and he looked up and he goes what's your heading and I read it off to him and it's one degree off he goes so it's wrong Pulled out, turn around, and we're talking one degree out of 360. Yeah. He's like, oh, pull out, do it again. I pull in, I, I miss it by one degree on the other side. He goes, ah, what's that read? I go, and I tell him, and it's one degree off. And he goes, okay, go around, do it again. Yeah. So we just sat there and practiced that over and over until I had it exactly spot on. Okay. And I have Which had- is- pretty understandable well it sets a standard very high that at least if you're always striving for that it's one of those you're not accepting good enough yeah you're setting for exactly right and if you deviate from that it's much easier than if you deviate from good enough because then you know right after good enough is not good enough right yeah so we went through t-34s and I did well enough in that I selected for the jet pipeline yeah which then I got sent down to Kingsville, Texas, and we flew the T-2 Buckeye first. Now that is an airplane, yeah, it's hard to explain. Again, it's a low wing. This is now a jet. Uh It's got tip tanks, very stubby wings, 
and a bubble canopy again, of course, yep. and it's twin engine. The engines are mounted very close together, but yeah, they were probably ought to double check that. Kind of sort of like a T-38, right? In the Air Force, they have this trainer. So that, picture a T-38 scrunched up. I gotcha. Not in my mind, this was not an attractive airplane, other right. than it was a jet. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was in the jet pipeline. It wasn't like an ugly look in those old Vietnam A6s, you know, that stubby nose. It, um, <laughs> like that. Picture an A6 and a T-38 having a kid, maybe. I got you. <laughs> All right. So, um, and that's where we eventually, you know, practiced, learned how to do formation flying in jets and you know you do acrobatics and you do instrument flying and all that and it all builds up towards at the end you go get carrier landings mm -hmm. at the time on the uss lexington same aircraft same aircraft yeah, this okay. is the first time you do carrier landings Ooh, talk to me about your first time you landed on an aircraft carrier as i remember it we show up in formation overhead at three thousand feet and look down at the lexington a world war ii carrier and i'm looking at it going that's awful small so you didn't take off from the carrier? No, you take, off, you take off from land, Okay. go out to the carrier, land first, and then start doing takeoffs and landings from the carrier. Gotcha. I, and, guess, I guess landing is easier than... Well, it's because they can issue a, a jet on land instead of trying to get a bunch of people out to the ship. You start them out onshore, have them fly out. And then they get what well, helps to get a little comfortable in the airplane and settle down as you go out there. And then you'd look down at the aircraft carrier from that position for the first time. And, and now you no longer settle down again. You're going, okay, here goes the fun. <laughs> but one of those things, it's always kind of become something that I look at later as I grew through college and all that and learned like, you know, if other people can do this, yeah. I can do this. Sure. I can at yeah. least give it a good try. Yeah. So we go down, I got my landings, that all went well. And, um, we, we ended up back at Pensacola and the Navy Reserve sent up a C-9 to pick us up to take us back to Kingsville. And uh, I can just remember after doing all those landings, we were all just ecstatic because it was oh, yeah. so much fun. How nervous are you? The first time you're coming into an aircraft carrier that looks probably looks small, right? Out in the middle of the water. I mean, how nerve-wracking is that? the first time you do it well it has your attention and, yeah you know you're just trying to <laughs> fall back on the training and go okay we're going to come in we're going to enter what you call the break which is a you run up alongside the aircraft carriers course and then you do a 180 degree turn get established on the downwind yep and then you're looking over at the ship and now you're going through what they've all talked to you about it's like well, you're going to be a beam the ship and at that point you need to be about a mile i say about a mile 0.9 to 1.1 acceptable so yeah. you wanted to be at a mile, as I remember it. Yeah. That, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure, because that's what it was for just about everything, for uh, the re reasons of physics as an airplane makes a turn. Um, and then you start the turn, and you start a descent, and here again is where that accuracy comes in. Yeah. The better landing is going to occur if you hit your altitudes through this turn as close as you possibly can while maintaining the airspeed as close as you Very possibly cool. can. And they always... They always place the boat into the, is that right? Into the wind. Oh yeah. Um, you're well, now, you is there is there a situation where you're landing w um, with the wind? 
I mean, there's downwind. In other words, no, yeah. most aircraft can't do that um, because yeah. the if you're landing with the wind, the wind is pushing you, and so now your airspeed is up, and or your your speed relative to the ship is up. And most airplanes, um, I think the S3 was the only one I knew of at that era that could land with a very small tailwind. So it's a lot like docking about. Dock into the current, into the wind. It's very similar. You get a lot more control, basically. Basically. Now, when you have some natural wind out there, they try to line the aircraft carrier up so that the wind is down the angled deck. If there's no wind out there, the aircraft carrier has to just drive straight forward, and so now you have the wind slightly from your right. Gotcha. And you have to now factor that in. But again, the more you've got everything kind of suitcased as you come up, mm -hmm. then the less you have to worry about the deviations. Very cool. So you do that for, I think we did six day landings and that was good, then you moved on to the A4. Mm -hmm. Go through that whole syllabus, which now they start introducing things like strafing and dive bombing and um, air to air sort of combat maneuvers at that time. Yeah. And then you end up back on an aircraft carrier for I think 10 landings at that point. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but I know all of these are somewhere between. Different aircraft? Well, this is in the A4 Skyhawk now, yep. uh, which is really cool because I think the one time I saw the Blue Angels before I was in the Navy, that was the airplane they were flying. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was just a neat airplane. It was a Vietnam uh, era aircraft that we were flying as trainers. Fun little plane to fly. I bet, I bet it was, yeah. When you were going um, at a reasonable speed, you could flick the stick hard over and it would roll at 720 degrees per second. Whoa. So you'd rotate twice in a per second. Per second. Per second. Oh my now there was a limit on how many times you could do this. You couldn't just flop the stick over and I don't remember what the, the limits we had were, but. Yeah, you'd pass out eventually, right? Well, the airplane's <laughs> not designed to be flying like a centrifuge, oh, right, so yeah, you're, yeah. you know, I'm assuming oil and fuel and all that's going everywhere. We that just, and you got to maintain a little bit of lift somewhere. Uh, yeah, right? somewhere in there. Right. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, we went and got ten more landings out on the aircraft carrier, and then we graduate. Yep. And here's the point at which it gets really entertaining for everybody because now here's where they pick where you're going to go. Who's going to go to F-14s? Who's going to go uh, to F-18s? So still don't know. Still don't know. Um, who's going to go to the S-3? Trying to remember what else. Oh, the A-6 was still there. Actually, we had a guy go to A-7s. And so you still don't know. Mm -hmm. And the only other thing that was in there, too, is they kept a certain percentage of us back because they had an instructor shortage. So they said, you're going to stay and teach, which bummed most people out. That's but no fun. That's no fun. I want to get out to the, the bigger airplanes we joined to do this thing with. But no kidding. I stayed as a selectively retained graduate, a SIR grad, they called us, and started teaching. Yeah. So I did that for two years, at which point, again... Oh, you got stuck as an instructor. I got kept as an instructor. Gotcha. Did that for two years. It was probably good for me because I learned a lot more about flying there. I got another 900 hours Yeah. Um, at that time. By the time I showed up at the fleet, I was very comfortable flying because I only had to learn the aircraft. I definitely wasn't completely comfortable flying as I started my instructor tour, which is probably kind of scary if you're thinking about it as a student. Yeah. Um, now at this point, it's Very cool. <laughs> it's, now we're up again. Now It's now time to 
pick a community that you're going to go to. Mm -hmm. And you get to pick a little more judiciously because you've done this. So yep. in other words, they're kind of contrary to what the military does sometimes. They're going, well, you know, we kind of gave you a little bit of a raw deal there. We'll give you a good deal here. You get a little bit more really? choice in your selection. Do they really do? <laughs> they told us they did. Yeah, okay. But by this time... They put you where they wanted to put you, right? <laughs> well, I had friends who were in the Marine Corps. When the Marine Corps had what they called a draft going, Yeah. there was no choice. You'd had guys right. that just wanted to do jets, mm -hmm. and nope, you're going to helicopters. And the Navy would take, maybe it's number one graduating student that week, and go, okay, you get to pick where you're going. Mm -hmm. Everybody else needs to go where we're going to assign you. And I have a good friend that did that, graduated number one in his class, and the Marines are like, nope, you're not going to that, you're going helicopters. That's what you got to do. Gotcha. So, he's still annoyed about that to this day, I think. <laughs> um, now, by this time, I still wanted to fly Tomcats, because I just thought it was a very cool airplane. Yeah, well, Top Gun. But the Hornet's coming out. <laughs> yeah, but now we're past the Top Gun, and the Hornet's out. Yeah. And the Hornet's really getting widespread throughout the fleet. Of course, it's about 20 years newer than the Tomcat. Yeah. Much better computerization and all that. Everyone wants to fly that. Wait, are there a couple of different versions of the, the Tom? The Tomcat had sweeping wings, right? Yes, it did. Okay. And the Air Force had another one that was kind of sort of the same, but didn't have the sweeping wings? The F-111 was supposed to be, as I understand it, the aircraft for the Navy. Yeah. And it just didn't do well on carrier course. No, there was the F-14, the F-15. Yes, F-15 is a, a land-based only aircraft. It's not beefed up to land on carriers. Is that because it doesn't have that sweeping wing? No, it's nothing to do with the wings. To land on the aircraft carriers, yeah. you've got to have... those. The, yeah, I say that because those two aircraft look very similar to me. That's why, the F-14, F-15. They're kind of similar, but um, nowhere near in performance. Gotcha. The F-15, because it's much lighter, is distinctly a better performing. The, Air, the Tomcat really should have been named an interceptor. It was designed to intercept Soviet bombers coming at the carrier group and defending the carrier group gotcha. with them. So it wasn't a, fight, a dog fighting no. type of... No, no. But still pretty cool. <laughs> It was still a cool airplane, and I wanted to fly it, and all my yeah. friends by this point want to go fly the F-18. And so I put, playing, you know, the old game theory thing, I put F-14 down first. Yep. Everybody else puts F-18 down first. They go through the F-18 guys, and they're kind of picking and choosing, and then they go, they take some of those and put them to the A-6. Mm -hmm. And then they get to me, and it's like, okay, well, then, you know, he wants F-14s. We got an F-14 slot, so off I go to F-14s. And that's all you flew after that? Was well, no, I flew um, F-14s for four years, well, one year of training and mm. three years in the fleet. And then I went and found this weird little job. There's a Naval Aviation Safety Magazine called Approach. Yeah. And I knew they were looking, well, the Tomcat, okay, the Tomcat community starts to disappear about this time. They shrink it so there's not holes left to rotate back into. I gotcha. What, what year about? 94. Okay. So about that time, I think they went from two squadrons per carrier to one. Actually, I think they did that in 93. Yeah. So by this time, the Tomcat's near the end of its useful life. Mm -hmm. So 
were casting about trying to find. They also did a reduction in force somewhere in there too. Yeah. So now they're necking down the military, they're necking down the community. Um, I still owe a little bit on my service obligation because at that time when you went aviation, you had to sign up for five years. Okay. Uh, from and now the, I think it's six. I think they've gone to 10. 10? Yeah. Wow. 10 total. Yeah. So um, I go to do this little safety magazine, which was known the world over among naval aviators and we did send the magazine out to a number of different foreign squadrons so it was it was pretty well read and I just it was one of those things I want to do it yeah I like to read I like to write let me go do this they're gonna pay me to to learn how to do this perfect so yeah off I go to do that and I sit there and I'm I'm amused for about two months and then I go I gotta fly so I wander over to the rework depot that's down the street go hey you guys need somebody to do most post maintenance check flights and they're well maybe but we're kind of full right now yeah okay so I wander over to base operations where they had these King Air derivative aircraft ah, the, King Air, yeah. the military called it the C-12 mm -hmm. and so now we're going from jet aviation fighter aircraft off the carrier and they needed some pilots so I go do that it's basically a small twin engine thing. Twin engine, yep. 10 seats, including the two pilots, I believe. And we had a crew chief, so now we were down to seven seats of passengers that we would carry. And we just ferried passengers around from base to base. And so my boss. You're a bus driver. <laughs> uh, more like a limo driver. Yeah. A small limo or a van, because it's not really a limo. Yeah. So we. We fly that for a while, and my boss was good. He's like, no, no, pilots need to fly, and so, yeah, you go fly, and that'll be fine. Well, they would call me, because they didn't know me, so they would call me, and they go, hey, we got a flight at 4.30 in the morning. It's going to run from Norfolk to D.C., and you'll be back about 8 or 8.30. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do that. I'll be back. I'll get my normal workload in, and everybody will be happy. Because we didn't start until 8, because Norfolk had a phased arrival of the jobs, because they didn't want everybody hitting the gates at 6.30 in the morning, gotcha. and our command was an 8 o'clock arrival. So I'm back about the time everybody's getting through their first cup of coffee and getting going anyway, so it's yeah. all good. Well, as anybody who ever tries to find people to do stuff will tell you, if you find somebody that says yes every time you call them, they become the people that you call first. All the time. <laughs> so I went from being the 4.30 in the morning guy on the weekdays yeah. and the Saturday and Sunday guy to the guy that they called to do the longer trips throughout the week. Yeah. And so one <laughs> one month, I get 60, 60 hours of flight time in, and my boss called me into his office and he goes, okay, listen, I know I told you you could fly, but your primary job is this magazine. I need you back in here more gotcha. and out there less. So I was like, yes, sir, okay. You, you, weren't, you weren't doing your billet, basically. I wasn't doing what I, my primary assignment was and you know he was right so we yeah. throttled it back but you know the scheduler she would call and she'd go hey you know can you do this one go yeah so I just said yes 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 to the point I got myself in trouble gotcha so, so you never went back to fighter type of aircraft after no. that I rotated from that job because there were no fighter type billets that they were offering me at that time and I ended up switching over to an active duty naval reserve spot. Gotcha. Pay, benefits, everything exactly the same, except for a while there I had an R behind my name. 
And Which so means? Reserve. Oh, gotcha. So it was U.S. Naval Reserve. They did like an active with, reserve. But I was an active duty reservist. Did, didn't lose a day of pay or anything. Yeah, okay. And they picked me because the Navy Reserves had some squadrons. They called and they said, okay, they had one F-14 squadron left at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think two F-18s maybe. And everybody that had Tomcat experience wanted to go to the Tomcat squadron. And they call and they go, you're not going to the Tomcat squadron. Okay. Where am I going to go? I go, you're not going to the C-9 squadrons either, which was a big jet aircraft, um, yeah. probably 80 seats, I would guess. They go, you're not going to do that either. We're going to send you to C-130s. Okay. <laughs> don't know I've anything. I've been in a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know anything about it, but all right. So we, uh, I go, they, I said, so what's available as jobs? Where? They yeah. go, well, you've basically got Maine or New Orleans out of the four squadrons, the other two, mm -hmm. California and D.C., and those aren't available. We don't have any holes there. So you can go to Maine, you can go to New Orleans. I go, well, New Orleans sounds good. So I go home, tell my wife, hey, yep. had this negotiation today and said, I think we're going to New Orleans. She goes, well, you think or you know? <laughs> I went, well, I, you know, go now, now that you me. ask it, that's a little fuzzy. I go, she goes, I don't want to go to Maine. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I came back in the next morning, called, you know, it's just pre-cell phone days and all that. Called back out to the guy that does our assignments in the Navy. They call him a detailer. said, hey, just to... Um, just to clarify, yesterday we kind of settled on New Orleans for me, right? And he goes, yeah, is that a problem? Which kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up because I'm going, what's <laughs> why? Um, no, New Orleans is good. He goes, okay, New Orleans it is. Thanks. See you. Bye. Hangs up. So we get down to New Orleans and yeah. get the C-130 training and come to find out this is one of those times where I tend to enjoy wherever I am for the most part. There's times like any military job, you're not enjoying what's going on around you or where you are or anything like that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But most people for some reason didn't like New Orleans. Hmm. And we're down there and we're just going, my wife gets a job selling credit card machines, so she's going down to all these new restaurants that are opening. Yeah. We'd get invited to the grand openings for those get to know all the neighbors and of course they're southern Louisiana natives they're all very friendly mm -hmm. and very welcoming to us and we would go in you know to the quarter and all the restaurants that are in the garden district. I've never been to New Orleans. It's some awesome places to eat. Yeah I have um, I have traveled the world and I've drove past it several times but I've never ever been to New Orleans. It's crazy. So I want to back up to um, Tomcat days. I think the craziest thing that I remember is during the Bosnian Herzegovina War, we had a well, we had a mission one day that had me under the cloud cover over Sarajevo taking photos because one of the jobs I had in the Tomcat, we had a re photography reconnaissance pod that we could mount under the plane. Okay. So we took tactical photos. Yep. And I just remember being over Sarajevo, as I recall, was kind of in a bowl, and if not, that's what it felt like. Yeah. And we're down at about 3,000 feet underneath this cloud cover trying to get these photos. So I've read a little bit about this. You had very clear-cut no-fly zones in that area, right? Or you And altitudes. And altitude, right? Couldn't go low, couldn't... Well, go ahead. You couldn't, go, couldn't go below, as I recall, it was 10,000 feet. Yeah. 
And if you'll remember the number I just mentioned, we're down below that because it's one of those then you get into the mission is to get the photos. Gotcha. Like, all right, but the, you know, the lower altitude that we're supposed to be, it's 10,000. Yeah. Boz, you have to get the photos. So I remember just highlighting myself against the undercast. Yeah. You know, we're right under the plane, yeah, or the plane's right underneath the cloud cover, and the Tomcat smoked a little bit, and I was just going, that one was a little nervous for a bit. Because yeah. although they weren't shooting at us... They did shoot at us, though. Well, and the, we were never sure when they might change their mind. Yeah, okay. And the they being, we're not sure which side, and then I remember getting a, a brief on the factions that were fighting and how you could tell the difference and who was friendly today, who, you know, and it's just all of that stuff. And I remember we weren't allowed to carry firearms, sidearms, while we were flying over it. And uh, Why is that? What if you had to bail out? And yeah, that was kind of what we were asking too. Yeah. What was your favorite thing to do in the Tomcat? Oh, geez. The, if we had no scheduled training mission that we had to do then, and sometimes you just needed to go fly so they could keep everything exercised, but they had nothing really arranged for us. One of the funnest things to do, well, one of the funnest things to do that was bona fide training was to go do low-level navigation routes. Okay. And there were places over in the Middle East that were just absolutely cool to fly down. Canyons and, excuse me, uh, you know, all kinds of fun little terrain. And there were no, there were no specific rules. You can't, like, you can't go um, low over housing or cities and stuff like that. Yes, these were very defined routes that would kept you away from populated areas. So you would go practice your low level navigation basically. Um, and they were beginning to get away from that because uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm had taught that going low was not the way to, to get in and survive. Oh, I uh, so they had a few losses they hadn't anticipated. Um, one of the fun things to do that uh, we would go set up against we'd set up mock uh intercept runs against each other and you do that for a little bit and then like everyone mini, mini war games yeah what? between your you and your section lead or you know yeah. whoever was with you and so so you were playing hide and seek with a 40 million dollar aircraft <laughs> with yeah and radar and all that so yeah you're trying to find a way to sneak up on him while he's trying to sure. find a way to sneak up on you yeah. and you know it's actually it was bona fide training because in the meantime the the radar intercept officers are sitting in the back they're getting the practice of running and operating the, the radar in the airplane. Mm -hmm. And so that was good. And then every once in a while, we just see a thunderstorm building and just get going as fast as I could at the base of it and pop up over the top of it. I think I was trying to hide from somebody one day when I first discovered this and then I didn't. Well, I was, explain that to me. Like, what, what is that maneuver? You see a, um, we see them in South Florida all the time, a big old thunderhead, right? And say the base is at 10,000 feet, and okay. it might be topping out as an early developer at 23, 25,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So you could get enough speed on as you made a run at it. And at then the as, base. At the base, and yeah. then as you get to the base, you pull up, and then you just go vertical, yeah. and you just go up the face of the cloud, mm -hmm. and then make a decision whether you can top out over the top of it. You gotta be at a minimum airspeed or you'll stall. Yeah. So you're kind of making a play. And if you could top out over the top, pulling downwards, mm -hmm. and then you'd scoot down the bottom side, uh, the other side of the cloud, picking That's up speed again. That's cool as hell. <laughs> I, yes, I know somebody who messed it up. And uh, that didn't, they got yelled at very seriously uh, because the engines were very touchy. Okay. So you had to be careful about how you treated them. Did, I mean, he did, did he do any damage? 
Uh, he ruined one engine. Oh my goodness. But it was still able to land. Oh yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they got the airplane back and everything. So that was in a day when there were a lot more aviation mishaps than there are now. Yeah. The, the rate of Class A, um, and I, I don't even know the current monetary value, at that point it was a million dollars or fatality. Our rate was about 10 or 13 per 100,000 flight hours, and um, it's down now to way, way below that. What, maybe do, you think that, what, what do you think the contributing factor to that is? Well, there was a whole lot of things going on. I mean, the people that fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, they just accepted that there were losses. Yeah. There were going to be training losses. There were just going to be things that just happened. But as the airplanes got more and more expensive, and as the pilot training got more and more expensive, then the military, all of the branches looked up and said, okay, this is not a way that we can continue to do business. Yeah. Um, interesting thing that happened... Well, I, I asked that question because I've read that, like the Super Hornet today, um, the F-18 Super Hornet, cannot fly without its computer. And the, does that mean that more of the systems today are um, computer automated and maybe uh, more of the accidents back in your day was human error? I think the number is still 80% of all accidents are human error, but the computer's yeah. taking some of that workload away. So, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, it'll tell you you're getting too low into terrain. Yeah, it's got a number. There's a number of safety systems that have been built in, too, but there's a lot of training that's gone in. And, oh, by the way, you know, the shenanigans, if you will, are no longer tolerated. Oh, yeah. So getting yourself up. You mean like climbing the thunderheads? <laughs> well, uh, perhaps. Uh, let's. Well, you yeah, came in at a good time then, right? I came in at what I would consider the end, near the end of the fun, fun times. Certainly you. the wild times. Did you ever? Um, did you ever pull the trigger on a combatant? No. Never. Never did. I got yeah. to fire a Phoenix once in a test run, which was a million-dollar missile. Yeah. So that was um, entertaining to watch, but it was just a training missile. It ended, I think, ended its life expectancy. So yeah, it was well, expired. Well, you still had um, you still had to train, right? Well, you still had to land on a carrier. No, so, I mean you still had to fire missiles. You did, to yeah, train, right? yeah. We yeah. fired missiles in training. We fired the the cannon in training. Um, we fired that one Phoenix. It was actually nice to get to do because they didn't have enough of those to go shooting them willy nilly. Uh, but the entertaining thing, after all of that, you still had to get back on that landing on yeah, the aircraft carrier. So I got a story about that if you want. Yeah, let's hear it. The all craziest right. carrier landing you have. Yeah. yeah, this was a crazy one. So I still remember we were 483 miles from the nearest land was lodges in the Azores. And that was on this computer screen, old monotype up high in the ready room. Okay, so 483 miles. What is the range of, of the Tomcat? Like with, with a full complement of fuel. If you were completely fueled, that was 20,000 pounds of gas and you could make here to, here to Dallas, I think. Somewhere about mid-country. Okay. So I'm not sure exactly what that math worked out. But here's the thing about fighter jets. It's got to be a thousand miles, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, over a thousand miles. But here's the problem. Yeah. You've been trying to get aboard an aircraft carrier, 
you're not at 20,000 pounds of oh, gas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're down around eight or six. My point is you're not making it 483 miles. You're to, not making it. To the no. nearest land. So go ahead. So I could yeah. have launched with full fuel and headed to the lodges. And yeah, I'm pretty sure we would have made that. You know, Not sure where the math is on it right now. Yeah. But what I do remember is this was a what we called a double bubble. The standard uh, flight time airborne off a carrier at that point was one hour and 30 minutes. Okay. This was a three-hour mission for us. So we launched, got gas, and we were doing a practice run against a returning aircraft carrier. So mm -hmm. we were pretending we were going to be doing something with them. And then they were, of course, trying to... Well, they were headed home, quite frankly. I doubt they were paying too much attention, but they did the training, and you know, and then so we come back. Well, we check in, and it is about 11:30 at night, and so nighttime landing. Nighttime landing, <laughs> and we had left. It was perfectly calm out there. Yeah, very nice, fairly clear night, as I remember. Calm, nice wind. If you're going to fly at night, it was a decent night. Yeah. So we check back in with the aircraft carriers were coming in, and the first thing they ask us is, how long can you stay airborne? Um, okay, this is not something they normally ask. <laughs> you, were in, you were supposed to be back across the, the deck of the aircraft carrier landing with certain amount of fuel. Sure. And we always, by the time we, were, we would get nervous out in the middle of the open water, so we tended to bump it up to the, whatever the max landing weight was with the stuff we had on the airplane. Just, to, just in case. Just in case. Yeah. If you didn't need to get that close, again, th things were kind of changing. Then. It's like, okay, let's just let's give ourselves a little extra. Well, 11.30 at night, he asked, uh, he asked us as we check in, how can you stay airborne? So I did my fast little math, looked down, calculated, and go, tell them... Uh, it's 1 a.m. until splash. In other words, out of fuel. Splash meaning you're in the, in the yeah. water. <laughs> All right. However ahead. the math worked with that, I might have said, okay, splash is here, back it up a half an hour. That gets me at the minimum safe fuel on deck we're supposed to have. So I say 1, 1 a.m. for the sake of the story here. And he comes back with, well, could you stay airborne until 2 a.m.? And I go, okay, this again is a very weird conversation <laughs> that's going on. So at this point, you're... At this point, I'm at, going... Well, you're at altitude, right? I'm probably 50 miles out coming in. So yeah, we're at somewhat of an altitude. The Tomcat was more efficient at lower altitudes yeah. than some of the current jets were. So I'm just trying to figure out why he keeps asking. Yes, well, that's what I'm trying to figure out, too, sure. at this point. Because this is not the normal conversation you check in with. Yeah. You would check in with your fuel state, and then they could all do the math, because you had one of your representatives in the air traffic control room on the carrier. And it's the one you see in the movies where the guys are riding backwards with the grease pencils and all that. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. they're doing that, because, and then they've got a rep there to answer technical questions if the air wing commander has something mm -hmm. he needs to know from that guy. Um, so, we check in and they put us into the landing pattern almost immediately, which normally you go into a holding pattern after the ship and about, let's see, six, 12, 15 miles back and you hold until it's your time and they give you a very specific time. They want you yeah. departing out of holding because that way they space everything, sure. 45 seconds. To, it's a very choreographed event. Well, they just turn us downwind. How, yeah, how many other aircraft besides you are in the air at this point? Well, normally 14 to 16, I would think. Oh, wow. Okay. But here's when we find out. Remember I said we were on a double 
cycle. Yeah. They're still trying to recover the guys that they had intended to recover an hour and a half ago. Oh, man. So they're just backlogging everybody. Backlogging everybody. So um, I had this thing I would do as a normal habit. As you make all the turns, you line up on final, you're at three miles and 900 feet, I believe. Been a long time since I've done this. But yeah. at three miles, I would look up and I'd take a look at the ship and see how everything's looking. So it wouldn't surprise me. You would still stay on instruments the rest of the way in, but you would take a mile. So I'd say, okay, three miles, let me see what things are looking like. Yeah. Well, I look out and the aircraft carrier that had been so stable when we left it is now pitching such that the fantail is going up and down 18 feet. Oh, my goodness. Plus 18, minus 18. So a, a, a total of 36 feet. 36 feet. The end of the runway that you're aiming at is moving up and down 36 feet. Yes. <laughs> Here's the other problem. The Tomcat hooked a ramp, which is, you know, the if you picture an airplane flying, yeah. the nose of the aircraft on a carrier aircraft is pitched up, and that keeps the tail hook down and it's the first thing to contact the deck, sure. followed shortly by the course all the rest of the aircraft. The hook to ramp clearance that we had was 14.1 feet. So if you come across there out of sync, you're gonna hit the round down. Yeah. That's a very bad night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, at that point- So you don't wanna hit this runway on- You're gonna hit the back of the ship. Yeah. yeah. It's not the runway you're gonna hit. You don't want it. I mean, what are you trying? Are you trying to um, catch it on the down well, or the up? <laughs> or stabilize. So what they do yeah. at that point is the landing signal officers, the guys that you see on the back of the World, II, World War II carriers with the paddles in their hand. Sure. They're telling the airplanes which way to go with those paddle signals, and they still call them paddles to this day, even though the paddles are long gone because the aircraft are so much faster. And so instead of that Fresnel lens that sits out there that you can only see a very minute angle of that tells you where you are. Yeah, up or down. Up or down. Yeah. They start manually controlling mm -hmm. that ball. So they're telling you where they are. It may not be completely accurate to where the Fresnel lens would have had you, but it's in a spot that they're comfortable with you as they feel the synchronization of the ships moving up and down and your approach. So I look out at three feet and I see the flight deck as it pitches nose down or bow down, all the lights completely disappear. And I watch it and I go, holy cow, I've never seen that. And as it cycles back, now I see the aircraft carrier deck and an aspect I've never seen it before because now it's flat on to me. Normally it has this very you, distinct yeah. kind of look as you're coming in. So I go, okay, I don't want to look outside anymore. Never mind. <laughs> I come back inside. I'm watching my instruments, watching my instruments, and I look outside at two miles. I go, well, maybe this I misunderstood and I'm just confused. And I look up and go, well, that's what she's doing, all right. And then you hear 99 Movilis, or we'd heard that somewhere. 99 means everybody. Movilis means that uh, LSO controlled for nail ball. So at a mile, I do the same thing. I look out, and it's still doing it. So I come back inside one more time. It's got to be getting worse at this it's point. It's getting much more obvious, that's for sure. So at a mile out, I, it's, still, I look, yeah. <laughs> it's still disappearing? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So right. I come back inside, and I spend the one quarter of the mile, because at three quarters of a mile, you have to come outside, and it's three quarters of a mile, call the ball, and you call the ball, 
and mm -hmm. tell them, you know. Uh, Explain that, come inside, outside. That's well, where you, fo you basically are focusing your attention? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what you're doing. So at three quarters of a mile, you have to go visual, call the ball. And now I'm looking outside, I'm going, holy cow. Well, I forget which way the deck pitched, but whatever it is, it wasn't good. And the LSOs waved me off. Okay, well, no harm, no foul. That's not my technique. Because what happens yeah. in these landings, you miss one and it's your fault. And you know it's your fault. Now you're more keyed up as you come back around mm -hmm. again. Well, of course, what happens to your performance as you get more and more nervous and keyed up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not going to improve. It's not. Yeah. So it's just, it's not a good start to a night when you've had to do a wave off. Well, this one I know is not me, so that's fine. So I'm going around, do it one more, come around the next time, land, get aboard. It's doing the same thing. Three miles, I look out, oh crap, I don't like that. Look inside, okay, two miles, still don't like it. One mile, still don't like it. All right, three quarters of a mile, I have to do it. So I'm out, get aboard, yeah. great. Only time I ever came close to getting seasick while taxiing around on a carrier was that night while you're in the, the aircraft. aircraft because this aircraft carrier is moving all over the place it's unbelievable what was it like you you got the aircraft down obviously i did right and after going around just once yeah i got lucky the second time around everything was in sync and so yeah. we landed yeah so we're taxiing up uh, we get directed uh, to just forward of the superstructure and again remember things have not been going well for the ship this yeah. night they're stacking aircraft up on catapults one and two, which are the two that you see on the bow of the carrier. Okay. It's like, okay, that's, there's airplane tie down all over the place. Well, all of a sudden, all the lights come up on the deck. Okay. And this is a very short time after they had landed me, because you, after you land, you clear the landing area. They tacked this very short area to this place where they tied us down with a lot of chains, I will add. They went to heavy weather chains. And then all the lights come up just as we're getting the plane shut down. And yeah. I have this irrational thought of why do they turn the lights on for this guy and not me? Yeah. Well, they turn the lights on for this guy because he had basically landed so hard, he drove his port landing gear through his wing. Oh my gosh. So he has now had a mishap in the middle of the landing area. So he obviously got it on the up. <laughs> right. Or, or I think, or he caught it going away and chased it. Okay. And so he just fell because the airplane he was flying had spoilers. So you could just flip a switch and it would kill all the lift on the the uh, wing. And so he might have chased it down. And when he caught it, it wasn't a happy sight. Wasn't good. Now here's the problem. And you didn't see him come in? I did not. I just, I'm having, you know, you're, you're very dark adapted. You're doing all of this as, as low a light as you can get. We routinely flew around with all the lights in the cockpit turned as low as they would go. Yeah. I do the same thing in a car. Yeah, well, out in the ocean, <laughs> in the ocean, it's even more apparent. And, yeah, yeah, you know. So, so, I'm wondering why the lights are up. There's this guy out, and, and I look around and hear, oh, okay, there's an S3 standing in the middle of the runway. He's not moving. I can't see yeah. on the other side to know what's going on. I find most of this out later. Well, he's blocking catapults three and four because they are in the landing area. Mm -hmm. Tilly the big yellow crane you see on shots of aircraft carrier is started every morning mm -hmm. because they had to make sure it's working before flight ops. It wouldn't start. And you got aircraft. Still got aircraft airborne. I'm not the, by any means the last one. And there. a blocked runway. And a blocked runway. Oh and gosh. so there's no way to get a tanker airborne. The only way anybody's getting anywhere is with 
the A6s that have fuel that is airborne. And I know they didn't have enough fuel for us. Now, can you refuel from jet to jet? You can. Not like a regular, like F-14 to F-14? No. Yeah, you can't do that. No, right? they had to have a special uh, buddy stores. They had a basically a, a blivet or a tank. Yeah, everybody's there. seen them. Yeah. 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 yeah, so you go up and tank from them. Fairly easy to tank from an A-6, as I recall. So how'd they get this guy out of the way? Uh, I don't know. It took hours. All the everybody that was left had to go to lodges. They had they got diverted. Yeah. So middle of the night to a strange field that happens to be semi kind of hilly terrain and all that because I've been there since. But I was just so happy. I was the next to last guy oh, to be aboard because I still remember that four hundred. So the aircraft that were still in the air, they had to go somewhere else. They had to go to lodges. Oh my God. That was the only land. Yeah. So they headed off that way, and I'm just sitting there as you, as we started this story. How far can you go? I couldn't have gone that far, and I don't know how much fuel was there, but I know the the two catapults were blocked, and there was no more fuel getting airborne. Yeah. Okay. So there's probably no tankers in the area. If you if this guy comes oh, no. in before you, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? You're ditching this aircraft. Right. Right. And here's the stupid part that we had done. We had talked our CO into letting us fly without our dry suits because there was a an area if the water yeah. temperature was between 50 and 60 and rescue was somewhat available you could fly without a dry suit well if you're diverting to lodges 200 miles from anything out there and you have to eject without your dry suit you're not a happy camper at, yeah, well you're probably i mean where are you at where's what area west of lot west of the azores okay what time eastern of atlantic um Water temps 55, so <laughs> lasting <laughs> not lasting long. So lasting that was not long. one of our brighter dry suits were such a pain to wear under all your flight gear, though. We hated doing it. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you end up in the water. I watched a guy eject in an A6 in a fjord off of Norway, and they had got watched him come out of the aircraft. Oh yeah, I watched. I was in the holding pattern overhead. I watched the A6 come off the bow catapult, rolled to the right. They ejected. Oh, right at the water level. Yeah. Airplane goes in the water. They lost an engine and something happened right there and they had to eject. And they were not wearing their dry suits properly and it sh they shredded on the A6 uh, pilot. The BN is a story we heard. Did that guy survive? Yeah, they got picked up. and oh, okay. yeah. Not one of my better graded landings right after watching that, I will say. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. I was like, boom, boom, boom. You ever there. come close to uh, punching out? I did one time, and it was in an A4. It was yeah. out in California, and we had a engine stick with a, what we call a stuck throttle procedure at a high power setting, higher than we normally practice. And so to make a very long story short, I, hit, I touched down on landing at about 210 knots. Our normal landing was about 130 knots. Oh, gosh. So we are smoking. There are no anti-skid brakes on these things. They're skinny little tires. Yeah. And so I'm trying to ease into the brakes, knowing it's going to be a very iffy anyway, because the thing hadn't shut down at where we had trained or anything. So you're on the ground and you're thinking about pulling. Yeah, I'm already thinking ahead to the end of the runway because I am not riding this A4 out into the desert because right behind the desert and then the base fence, mm -hmm. as I remember, it was a ravine and, you know, one of those 20, 30 foot deep ditches out there. And Couldn't going, have taken back off? Again. No, because when you land with a stuck throttle, one of the things you do on short final is you shut the fuel shutoff valve off. 
Gotcha. So you kill the fuel. But here's how bad my day was going. Yeah. Not only was the throttle banging against an oxygen line there that it shouldn't have been. Yeah. And I no, I take that back. The throttle, there was a, a cotter key in there uh, that mm -hmm. caught on some rigging inside, a cable. So you just simply couldn't pull it back. Couldn't pull it back. Yeah. Now, and of course I didn't want to ease it forward and that might have just fixed it, ease it forward a little and bring it back, but it was already higher than Slim. we trained for. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I don't want to risk it sticking even higher. So I didn't pull it back. Well, on short final, you secure the fuel shutoff valve. That's not what it's called, but that's what it does. Yeah. My day is going so bad at this point that not only do I have a stuck throttle, the fuel shutoff valve that I had checked on pre-flight and had a very solid thud like it closed. Yeah. That thud was it hitting an oxygen line oh at God. about three quarters closed. So now I'm in the flare expecting to hear silence in a dead engine, and I've still got an engine going yeah. behind can't me. Can't shut it anything. off. It's not shutting off. I can't go back around because I've committed the fuel shutoff valve, because if I try to open that, I have no idea what I'm going to get. Mm -hmm. All of this is going way faster than I'm saying it. So I'm touching down. I've got a student in the front seat, and I'm just gingerly easing on the brakes. And you save the landing, or the arresting gear until you're close to the long field wire across the field because if you don't if you're driving down 200 knots yeah. you know slowing hopefully but still the point's going to sit down there and the runway is going to be like sandpaper to it mm -hmm. so it'll literally wear it off before you get to the area that you need it so you wait till about a thousand field a thousand feet yeah. from that resting gear That's and then crazy. you drop the hook well about that time the airplane got a little wobbly I was like, oh, that's kind of weird it was doing just fine before this but is all happening within 10, 15 seconds, I'm guessing, 20 seconds? From the time we shut the fuel off, yeah, yeah at mm. the most. So, Not and, enough time. And when the, when the engine finally quit, the generator goes offline. We don't have a battery, so now I can't talk to the student. He can't talk to me. Um, and it's still somewhat noisy in there because there's still airflow coming across, so we can't really yell at each other. And I'm coming down to the end of the runway, and I've still got rudder authority, which is telling me 80 knots, 100 knots, something like that. I'm just going, okay, this ain't good. What so does I'm, that mean, rudder? Authority? Well, it means the rudder's working. Okay. It's doing something. Yeah. So it's got airflow by it, enough to affect the aircraft. Yes, which yeah. you do not have near the end of the runway normally. Gotcha. So my game plan at this point is if we don't catch the arresting gear, I'm going to eject. Yeah. That, and you're telling your students? No, thing? I was just going to yell it. Because oh, gotcha. we would have time to prep because I would go out first, so it would be the canopy, then me, then him. So I'm going to wait to see if we catch the arresting gear, and if we don't, then we're ejecting. Yeah. So the closest I ever came to ejecting was on the ground. <laughs> that is crazy. Let's talk about 9-11. Where, where were you at during 9-11? I was on the fifth floor of the Pentagon in 5B-666. So the second ring in from the courtyard on the fifth floor, which is the top floor. And where was, so you were at the Pentagon when the plane hit? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. So, so talk about that. How, how close were you to the impact? Well, the fire boundary that they set up after the impact was right outside of our office. And so the head that I used at least the one that was out that way got locked off that's how close things got to the office but as far as the impact goes um, 
And if we can back up just one second, I'll sure. give you a little bit of background yeah, of that morning, ahead. and I'll try not to, to draw it out too much. But we were in an office that was being moved, and so pretty much everything was gone. And we had, back then, it was funny in the sense that we only had the high side computers, the classified stuff, and we only had one unclassified guy. And we had one guy on it, just happened to catch the news that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And initially, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, clouds, something, they got lost or whatever that happens in aviation. And it wasn't what D.C. looked like that day. It was a nice sunny day, clear. And so uh, we go to watch the TV for a little bit, and I believe we, we just looked at that, and then I wandered back off, and then somebody came back in, and they said, oh, yeah, another plane just hit the World Trade Center. Gotcha. And I said, okay, um, that is not an accident, obviously. And oh, by the way, we are in one of the biggest targets in the nation, too. Yeah. And so um, we get back to work, and not too much time goes by, as I recall. And my boss is on the phone to his wife, and I'm sitting in the cubicle right next to him. And we hear this loud boom. And I hear, I remember him saying to his wife, honey, I got to go. I just heard the loudest noise I've ever heard here at the Pentagon. Yeah. He hangs up. We're looking around. Shortly after that, the fire alarms go off and we begin evacuating the building. Now, by begin, everybody leaves and they know where they're going. Me and one guy stayed behind to secure all the classified material, lock the doors and all that stuff, um, which was probably completely unnecessary looking back on it. But we did it. And I had to stick with him because at this point I knew one, I had only got there a month before. I knew one route from the bus station to the office. I knew how to get from the office to the gym. Yeah. And I only knew those two routes and I didn't know the way to get to where our evacuation regrouping point was uh, because it was also going in the opposite direction of my normal pattern. My normal pattern was towards where the explosion had occurred. So, so were you thinking when you heard that explosion this is an airplane. This is another airplane. No, not necessarily. We knew something was wrong um, because the noise was just so loud and then the fire alarms going off. But I didn't know that it was a plane. And uh, when we got outside, we were on the far side of the Pentagon over near the child care facility, at least it was at the time. And you could just see some smoke coming up, as, uh, but nowhere near. You know, we're completely on the other side, uh, probably, jeez, uh, half a mile away at least, and behind the building. So yeah. no real clue initially. I gotcha. And what happened in the days after that? Working in the Pentagon, did, did they keep you away from there? Did you have to go to work the next day? What was it like? We went, well, first off, getting home was an interesting issue because I'd been riding the Metro. And the metro completely shut down at about that point, at least. Pretty much you know, everything was shut down. Everything shut down. I got a ride with a Navy captain who lived in the county next to me, and he offered to, to take me home and offered to take one of our secretaries home with us. So if you're familiar with D.C., as you come east on the Woodrow-Wilson Bridge, you come up on the top there. That's Oxon Hill. That's where she leave, lived. So we're going to drop her off and then head on home from there. Yeah. Uh, and we're trying to, the cell phone networks just went nuts. You could not get through. And texting just wasn't that big of a deal at that point. Uh, most of the people are using their cell phones to call landlines at home and vice versa. It's not anything like today. So we're trying to reach our wives to let them know. Oh, my wife knew. She's 
messing with the construction of the house as we were just moving in and redoing some of it. And one of our other neighbors, also a Navy captain, came down and asked her, said, hey, have you seen the news? And she goes, no, I'm busy working. He goes, so you got to come up to the house with me here. So they go back to his house, turn on the TV, and all they see is that a plane has hit the Navy section of the Pentagon. Yeah. And all she knows, I'm in the Navy working for the Navy in the Pentagon. And at this point, there's no way you can get out to her. No. We had one cell phone, and the networks just got completely crushed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So eventually we got home about three and a half, four hours later on what was normally slightly an under an hour commute. And, um, and, you know, went over, picked my son up out of elementary school and said, yeah, come on, spend some family time with us today. Yeah. He didn't know what was going on. But, uh, so the, that evening we went and bought a TV because ours was still in, you know, storage from the military yeah, shipping. Yeah, 30 days. Yeah, and just, yeah. there was no TV, so we bought a new TV. And I remember that night, it's just super quiet. Even though we're on the country, it's just getting used to the lack of noise. And I heard a fighter jet screaming over somewhere in the middle of the night, headed somewhere very fast. But, you know, okay, yeah. no idea what it was or what was going sure. on. But that, there was no planes flying other than that, you know, because they had grounded everything. Oh, yeah. So I think we got the next day off while they tried to figure out what to do with us. And a couple of days later, we moved into the positions and the offices down in Crystal City that my department was moving to anyway. But okay. they just, you know, okay, that everybody that had been working that had already moved to the new section, which is the one that got hit, then came to work down there. So we just reset everything up down in Crystal City. Gotcha. And it took a couple of days to do. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that's post-9-11 service. Everything blows up from there, right? So. Oh, it was all of a sudden... Uh, you had to walk through the metal detector to come into the office. They had to search all the cars as they went into the parking lot underneath. Um, I, I remember asking a guy once Christmas time rolled around and we're still down there in the car in front of me. The lady had just a, a trunk full of Christmas presents and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to be late to work. This is going to take forever them, for them to search the car. And he opened, the guard opens the hood, looks under the, the trunk lid rather, and closes it and says, sends her on her way. Yeah. <laughs> And then pops my lid, and I'm looking at him, like, um, what did that accomplish? And he goes, that's our rules. Like, okay, well, thanks. I gotcha. Yeah, I was half a world away. And it might have been, let's see, it hit at 8 o'clock. It was, it was 9 p.m. before I heard. I was, I was in Korea. Okay. And I lived off base. And when we heard about it, complete recall. Recall roster was initiated. Complete lockdown of the base. We're half a world away, but complete lockdown. Um, we're drawing weapons and doing roving yards on our base on well, the other just, side of the world. You, so. Nobody knew what they were going to do next. Yeah. So, yeah, that was 9-11 at the Pentagon. I just got there, and uh, boom. I, you yeah. know, it's funny. One of the things that keeps coming up with there, the conspiracy stories of everything and a friend yeah. and I walked around after we were stationed back at the Pentagon and uh, you know we got gas at the that gas station that used to be there that had the cameras were not working but we went over and talked to one of the security guards who had been on duty that day and he goes oh yeah I saw a plane come right over that thing so yeah. there's lots of people saw planes yeah so how you could say that was a, a bomb or a conspiracy or whatever oh I got gotcha. you Anyway, that's 
probably neither here yeah, nor there. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, there's always speculation and people change stories and what happened here, what happened there. It was a plane. <laughs> it was a Too plane at a minimum. saw yeah. a plane going to the Pentagon. Yes. But anyway, thanks for talking to me. Um, um, hopefully you get to go fishing with Reeling Freedom again, and, and we, we appreciate your support, and, and thank you very much. Appreciate it. There's some good fishing reports out there right now, so hopefully we yeah, can do it soon. Yeah, fishing, man. It's kingfish season. we got to go out and catch some kingfish and, and collect our uh, stone crab traps, too. So. <laughs> the report I read this morning said the Spanish mac were hitting on the crab pot lines out there. Yeah. Um, some of them so big, the guy thought it was a king he had on. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Time to go. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. feel like I'm just sitting here telling old stories. Yeah, that's that, what we do, right? Just bring... You know, it brings, my whole purpose with the podcast is to bring people that fish with us, people in the fishing ind- industry, and veterans like yourself to our sponsors, so they know what we're doing, and, and you know, and you're interesting people. You're well, in, you're in my category of interesting people. Well, thank so, you. Uh, yeah. You guys are doing great work out there, and it's great to be involved, uh, volunteering occasionally, and going out with you, and all of that, so yeah. I do appreciate the work you're doing. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yes. Thank you. Cheers. All right.